and welcome back to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan the Dr. Van Schenk, and here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy the Infirm Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you the Infirm Swingle? Uh, Because part of the reason why we've taken so long to record this next podcast is that I was sick and had no voice for like a month. (laughs) Yeah, Jeremy, so what, 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 uh, uh, what have your ailments been over the last little while here? Oh, let me just uh, put out on the internet for everyone to hear all of my uh, trials and tribulations. <laughs> uh, no, it's pretty standard cold followed by sinus infection. And I don't know, when I get bad colds, I tend to just totally lose my voice. Uh, so, so yeah, so that's one reason why we had a brief hiatus. Uh, but it sounds like you also had a reason to delay the recording of this podcast. Yes, indeed. As we mentioned in our last uh, episode, we originally started taking the hiatus because I was hurriedly trying to finish my PhD. And uh, in fact, I did successfully finish my uh, dissertation. I defended it. Everything's all like wrapped up, hands washed. So I now am officially a PhD. I am I am Dr. Van Shank, no longer just merely Mr. Van Shank. Uh, and yeah, but, but now that's all wrapped up so we can, we can go back to doing the real fun stuff of talking about the Bible. Yeah. I I did watch John's PhD, uh, defense online and I can assure you that this podcast is more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Savage. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, but the, the best part about it is I think I actually agree with you, Jeremy. (laughs) I'm very thankful people like you exist, and I was very happy to support you, but I'm not interested in your PhD topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was it was very nice that, that, that you tuned in and listened to it. I really appreciated the support, but I'll tell you, I am I am so happy to be back doing, like, regular person things again, like working a job and recording a podcast with my friend and not doing, like, crazy writing dissertations and summarizing research articles things anymore (laughs) my quality of life is so much higher now just now that i have just like a single job again (laughs) yeah it's the simple things in life right not all this hoity-toity science yeah yeah totally and it's like i mean you know it helps that now i actually get to hang out with my wife and my son again and (laughs) so (laughs) that's a definite plus (laughs) Uh, yeah, there was a while there where I was just, I was working a lot of hours and I didn't get to see my family very much. And uh, yeah, so I'm very, I'm very happy that I'm like back into a normal swing of things. Well, and it's especially like when you have kids at our age, like 13 months coming on 14 months soon, uh, man, they just like, they learn new words. They like start contorting their bodies in different ways. Uh, and it's like you <laughs> go two or three days without spending much time with them and they're different people um like yeah so Anna will like text me because sometimes I work days and nights and I and I'll just not see him for a day or so and Anna will text me like oh he said this today and I'm like uh my heart's melting (laughs) (laughs) yeah is is Josiah speaking a lot now is he like getting words and things yeah he's got a few I mean his repertoire is small but he really uses them a lot uh I mean he's been saying mama and dada for a while but now he's got num num and he loves that word. Oh, oh, I'm yes. Fairly, I, yeah, I'm fairly persuaded that the only thing my son really thinks about is food. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, so so clearly he, you know, is my son. That's the, <laughs> he, he, he doesn't 
The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree, as they say. There it is. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. Elisha has um, just in the last few weeks started saying daddy. Um, and also he started saying mama. And but it's it's very sad because he only says mama when he's upset right now. So it's like, you know, if he <laughs> wants change exerted in his situation, he'll say mama. Um, but if he's like, you know, when I come home or something, he'll be excited and he'll say daddy. So I'm kind of bummed out that, you know, I it <laughs> I, I am the fun name and, and Kaylee is the, you know, like fix his problems name. But hopefully we will disabuse him of that notion very soon here and he can. Uh, start calling out to his mother in joy as well <laughs> I, I think it's the same circumstance for us i don't know what it is like uh how babies' brains work but there's like mama i think before it means oh this person this individual with a will and heart and you know defined body that i am talking to who provides me with you know the things i need for living that's not what they mean by mama at first what they mean is like i want something <laughs> like it's just a generalized term for uh-oh i'm not perfectly happy right now mama <laughs> um, yeah yeah and, and then the things come <laughs> you know? yes well and and it, and it makes perfect sense especially if you do like lots of uh like nursing or things like that where it's like you know mom really does supply a lot of the needs for a long time but us dads are fun it's true it's true so we, we have something going we have something going for us <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's true <laughs> that's 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 the claim to fame right is uh at least i'm fun <laughs> cut the chit chat let's crack open the word well that being said <laughs> now that we've uh chatted about the boys um let's proceed let's we got a doozy of a topic today everybody so i hope you're in for it so today's topic is going to be a bit of an interesting one. Uh, we're not necessarily picking a super well-known verse today. Uh, like normally we would pick a <laughs> Romans 3.23, John 3.16 type verse um, and pick apart the context. But there's instead, there's like a theological concept that I think is often misunderstood. And I'd like to explore that concept through this verse. <laughs> so... Um, and what we're looking at is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, and it's the first part of the verse in particular, uh, and it reads like this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And what we would like to do <laughs> when exploring this verse is to talk about uh, what is the will of God? What does that term mean? And to talk about some miscommu mis miscommunications, some, some misconceptions, rather, uh, about that term and the way people use it. And I think that this will be both a very theological episode in that we're going to throw a lot of terms around and we'll, we'll define them carefully, but, but you might have to track with us uh, to make sure you don't miss anything. Um, and, but I think it'll also be a, a very practical episode because I think a huge, like a reason I wanted to tackle this is because I, I see people get themselves in trouble because they misunderstand this concept. Uh, I don't know if you have John, but, uh, but I think people like to talk about the will of God for their life or something like that. And I think what they're saying is actually very divorced from what the scriptures say about the will of God. So uh, this verse in 1 Thessalonians will be kind of our springboard to talk about it, but we're going to go elsewhere in scripture and look at it through the whole of, of the Bible. 
Yeah, certainly. And 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 actually, I think that this episode is going to interface really well with some one of our previous episodes where we talked about the uh, book of James and, you know, kind of this idea of like, uh, oh, James says you're justified by works and Paul says you're not justified by works and like, ah, uh, they're contradicting each other. And, and, you know, kind of basically our whole argument from that episode was, well, it, like they aren't necessarily meaning the same thing that we mean when we use the theological term justification, that they're sort of their their utilization of that language is is a little bit different and so we need to be careful when we're reading that and i think the same kind of thing happens here where there's like a theological meaning of like god's will um and then the biblical authors sort of use that term in a in a will argue in a number of different ways and i think it's important when we build up our our theology of the will of god and and when we make sense of what that term means for us in our everyday lives that we are kind of going to trying to figure out and hold together all of the different utilizations of, of how scripture handles it. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I think this is going to be a really fun episode to kind of continue some of the previous things that we've talked about before. And, and again, I like, I, I think this is a super practical uh, uh, verse. Cause it's like, you know, who doesn't want to be in, or like what Christian doesn't want to be in line with God's will. And so I, I think in terms of practicality of how we live our lives, this is this is the core of it. Of of course, we want to be living our lives in concert with God's will, and so now we just need to figure out. Well, you know, what does that mean? It's time for the meat. So, with that, our hope for this episode, again, like Jeremy said, is not necessarily a mis misinterpretation of this verse specifically, but perhaps some imprecise utilizations of the theological concept that this verse is talking about. Now, uh, in keeping with our standard approach for how to uh, uh, handle God's word here is, uh, of course, we need to be investigating the context for it. Uh, some of our more astute listeners may have uh, heard the fact that this verse starts with a for, for this is the will of God. And then uh, uh, you didn't hear Jeremy pronounce it, but perhaps you heard it in his voice, the uh, ellipses at the end of the verse where the verse continues and, and we didn't keep reading. So how about we just take a second here and read the context of this passage in First Thessalonians uh, before we kind of dig into the details of it a little bit. So I'll start, um, I'm reading in First Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll begin in verse 1 and go uh, probably through verse 8 here. So starting in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave to you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things." As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Yeah, so some of this context, uh, of course, Paul is talking primarily about abstinence from sexual immorality. And that's so that's what he has in mind when he's talking about sanctification. Now, sanctification as a more general term, if it were removed from the context, just means, you know, being set apart, being made holy. Um, 
And so, you know, again, in, in the context, it's talking about a particular kind of it. But generally, sanctification is about more than sexual immorality. It would also be about, you know, such things as getting in control of your anger right? Um, and any other manner of being a righteous person and, and avoiding sin. Totally. And Paul does get to that a little bit in hits on some of that more generality in verse seven when he says, you know, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And that idea of holiness is more than just sexual purity. Right, exactly. And there's a number of things about this passage I'll mention in passing that are difficult to interpret, that are irrelevant to the point we're making <laughs> in this episode. So I'm not going to touch on them. Um, I'll just point out that one. there's one I find really interesting when it says in verse four, each one of you should know how to control his own body and holiness and honor. Uh, the Greek is actually kind of ambiguous there. Um, the the I think it's literally, it's something like uh, to man like to control your own vessel is the term and so because of that some people actually think paul is saying each one of you should know how to like have a wife in holiness and honor so some people think paul is not talking about your own body but rather like you should know how to be a married man and stay faithful to your wife um and i don't know i i didn't examine super in super close detail all the arguments to uh one or to the other but I do think that's kind of interesting. And I would say that the reason people probably go on that route is that Peter refers to women as a vessel in 1 Peter 3. Uh, it's using that same term. So now that is totally not related to <laughs> the point of what we're talking about. But but that's just <laughs> to say, like, we're not really digging too deep into the context of 1 Thessalonians 4. We will talk some about it, but um, we're going to go a little away from this passage and, and come back to it. So I, I don't want people to forget the context, though. <laughs> For sure. And if our listeners are really interested in hearing more about the details of this verse, how about you send us an email at the john 315 podcast at gmail.com and let us know that you'd like us to do a, a bigger uh, episode kind of on more of the specifics of this First Thessalonians passage. Absolutely. It gives me an excuse to study more Greek. So <laughs> if we don't get any emails, we'll assume <laughs> no one wanted to know. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Watch this. It's like, you know, in five years, once this podcast takes over the world, uh, you know, we're going to get a bunch of, uh, <laughs> you know, emails as people go through our backlog. They'll be like, hey, years ago, you guys did that first Thessalonians. I want to hear more about it. <laughs> so so it's never too late. If it's the year 20, you know, 65, uh, you know, and uh, uh, you you want to hear more about first Thessalonians, go ahead and still email us. We probably won't be allowed on any of the podcast apps by then, though. We could get canceled at any moment. So you got to. <laughs> oh, it's it's true. It's true. When when you email us, also make sure you send us your mailing address so we can, you know, uh, uh, mail you an SD card uh, with the, the podcast episode saved on it or something. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing I want to talk about is that there are two distinct uses of this word will, uh, particularly when we're talking about the will of God uh, in the Bible. And I'd like to just highlight some different passages that demonstrate what I'm talking about so that you know I'm not just making this up. <laughs> um, two different uses of the word will. The first one is I think the way a lot of people uh, think about the will of God when they're making decisions or when they're praying to know about God's will. And that would be things that God commands of us. And we're going to use a big term for this um, that we're going to use throughout the, the episode. So... That word is preceptive will. So precepts, of course, are like rules, right? So, you know, you tell your kids, don't, 
you know, you're not allowed to leave the house without me, right? Well, that's a precept that you're setting in place. So when we talk about like the will of God is that you abstain from sexual morality, we're talking about God's preceptive will, because that is a precept, a rule that he has set in place. And this is the, really the more common and straightforward use of the term in scripture. I think you'd probably, if you were to count it all up, there's more uses of this than the other use we're going to talk about. Here's some examples. Here's uh, Mark 3, verse 35. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So here we see you can do the will of the Father. It's something that, that you can choose to do or not to do um, that is commanded of you. What about uh, Romans 12, verse 2? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if it weren't for that last phrase in this verse, this would maybe be a bit of an ambiguous meaning. But Paul clarifies that when he says discerning the will of God, he's saying discerning what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. In other words, what God commands of us, his precepts. So this is also a reference to God's preceptive will. And one final one here related to the Mark passage 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, whoever does the will of God abides forever. So again, here we have, there is this thing called the will of God that you can do or not do. Some do it and some don't do it. The ones who do abide forever. It's a, a matter of obeying God, which is a major theme of 1 John. So those are some examples of the preceptive will of God. Another term we might use would be the revealed will of God. And we say that because it's revealed to us. God has made clear in his scriptures what he expects of us and what he doesn't. He has revealed it to us in the Bible. And maybe a, another way that we can help people uh, to understand this a little bit more would be, you know, when we're talking about God's revealed will or his preceptive will, uh, it, it, it's maybe kind of closer to, as humans, the way that we would, like, express our, our like, desires for something. So, like you were saying, Jeremy, that it's like, if you tell your kid not to go outside, you've expressed a, like, in that sense, a revealed will to them that you have prescribed something. And, and in this one, that, be, you know, you have expressed what you want for them to do. And, and I think, you know, we want to be a little bit careful here, but, but to articulate that this is, in a sense, the things that God wants for us to do or that he has revealed that he desires that we do uh, might be a, like one way that you could think about that. So in this, you know, first John passage where it says, whoever does the will of God abides forever or, you know, connected with the Mark, uh, the Mark passage of whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister. It's in a sense that this is like the what God has articulated that his desires for our action are or what his desires for um the, the, the way that the world operates are, if that makes sense. Yeah. What, what is God, what, I, another way of putting it might just be like, what pleases him, right? That's what Romans, the Romans passage is getting at, you know, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's discerning the will of God. What is acceptable? That term connotes that like God is thinking and, and regarding our behavior in a certain manner. And some of it is pleasing to him and some of, some of it is not. Yeah, and and perhaps and perhaps maybe some of what makes this different than merely just like what would please God in in the maybe in the the human analogy of because there are plenty of things that would please me but aren't necessarily connected with my will in that and and the difference here is that because God is Creator you know he he creates things and so like in that sense it's not just that God like likes for these things to happen but because he has established the order of the universe his 
pleasure around the way things operate is connected with the like there is this sense in him uh uh uh, uh willing those things to happen as well so it's 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 more than just a desire um in that because god is himself the creator of the world so he sort of sets up the way that the world operates if that makes sense sure yeah it doesn't work the way our desires work right and and god's preceptive will is not like wow i would really be thrilled if i had a hamburger right now <laughs> which is what we might say like, man i'm i'm willing to go get a hamburger right like you know it is it is the will of jonathan that he eat a hamburger <laughs> <laughs> right yeah so that's the revealed will or the preceptive will i think to keep things simple will you say preceptive um but I, I think it's useful to have that other term in mind as well because it contrasts well with our second use of the word will we're going to highlight here which is god's secret will so God has a revealed will, and then he has a secret will, which in this context just means it's something that God hasn't revealed to us. He's keeping it to himself. Yes, his unrevealed will. His, yeah, we could just say his unrevealed will. But secret sounds pretty cool, so we'll say secret will. And then the other term we're going to use, probably we'll use this more often in the episode, is this term decretive will, which is another way of saying God's will of decree which probably doesn't necessarily clear it up for everybody. So um, what we're talking about here is... N- right, yeah, because my immediate question is, what's the difference between a precept and a decree? <laughs> right. It's using decree in sort of the special technical sense um, in theology, where we're talking about like what God causes to happen. Like, what is the actual course of history going to be? Right? So this contrasts with what God wants to have happen in his... Uh, perceptive will, because this is what actually happens in history. For example, let's just take something that was like obviously against God's perceptive will, but nevertheless happened, uh, like the Holocaust, right? Like the most obvious example of, of something which was horrifically in opposition to God's precepts, and yet it happened. It happened anyways. So how do we understand this? Well, we could say, so this is going to depend <laughs> And I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this because I don't actually think it's crucial to the point in this episode, but it depends on whether you have a more Calvinist take on things or or a more Arminian take on things. And again, I, I don't want to go into defining those terms for those who aren't familiar, um, but it's kind of like, okay, if you're more of a Calvinist, you would say, okay, God causes things to happen in some in some sense, right? But if you're more Arminian, you would say God allows these things to happen. Like God didn't like directly bring it about that Hitler would rise to power, um, but he did allow it to happen. He didn't interfere, in other words. So no matter what kind of, you know, doesn't matter what kind of theology you hold to, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you have to accept one or the other of these. Because, I mean, I, the only other option is to say God isn't in power or God isn't sovereign. Or maybe you could say that God doesn't care about evil. Well, none of those are options for for like the, the real Christian. We have to say, okay, somehow this works with, with God, um, that he desires that people not murder or steal or whatever, and yet people in fact do throughout history. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about God's decretive will or his secret will. It's somehow in God's will that these things occur, even though they seem to be in contrast with what he says is his will elsewhere in scripture. Let's look at, uh, here's, here's a crucial one. Matthew chapter 26, verse 42. This is Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to his father and he says this, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will 
that's the Father's will, be done. So Jesus is here talking about the, the absolute worst sin committed in human history, the crucifixion of the Messiah himself. But he says it's God's will. He says, it's if it's your will, Father, then I will drink the cup of your wrath on the cross. If this is what you want for me, to be crucified on a Roman cross. And that's his prayer. And it does happen. <laughs> so here's a pretty interesting example of this, this term, will. Um, clearly, murder is not in God's will, particularly of the Messiah. And yet Jesus says it is his will. So there must be a different sense in which will is being used here. What about this one? Romans chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul is telling the Roman church, he's introducing his letter, he's explaining why he hasn't been able to see them yet, and he says this, I remember you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So Paul is asking that God's will would accord with his desire to visit them, but Paul doesn't actually know for sure if that will happen or not. You know, will the circumstances of Paul's life come together in such a way that he'll get to see the Roman Christians? Well, that's the Lord's secret. <laughs> Paul doesn't actually know for sure. The Lord could take him elsewhere. Uh, he hasn't received a direct command from the Lord that, like, this is exactly what will happen. So Paul is simply asking that that would be God's will. He's, he's trying to, you know, uh, find a way to align his own desires with God's. But he doesn't know. <laughs> so, so this is clearly not the same thing as whoever does the will of God. Here, Paul doesn't know how to do this type of will of God. That's not a, in, I guess, in purview here. Uh, and one last one, First Peter chapter three, verse seventeen: It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So this this one is kind of in addition to Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. This passage includes the suffering of not just Jesus, but also his disciples. <laughs> um, and even the most fortunate Christians suffer at least some in this age. Even with all of our, you know, blessings and privileges in the good old U.S. of A., you know, we suffer at least some. Everybody goes through tough stuff, you know. Um, but, but Peter says, like, we can even suffer as a result of doing good. You can do the right thing and suffer for it. You know, you can confess Christ and get thrown into prison. Um like you can, uh, just like uh, Pastor James Coates up in Canada, you can have church and get thrown in prison for it and have police surround your church. I mean, this is not just happening in, in, um, in you know, like China anymore. This is happening in the West, right? But Peter encourages us that like doing the right thing is the right thing. We should do it even if we face suffering for it. God is in control. And, and somehow, whether you say God causes it or allows it, this suffering that comes about as a result of our good is is in his will. And that might be hard to understand for us, but Peter nevertheless says it's true. So those are a few different examples, kind of different contexts in which we might talk about this secret will or his decretive will, where God foreordains or allows, you know, these things to happen, even though they're not part of his like commands that he's revealed to us. Certainly. And I, and I think I really want to highlight that last point that you just made, Jeremy, that, you know, whether we like it or not, these are the words that Scripture uses to articulate these things. And so no matter what your, um, like, theological uh, commitments are, when, you know, when it comes down to it, you have to account for the fact that 
scripture uses will in these in these different contexts of this context where it's you know seeming to articulate something about the way that God has revealed that he he like desires his people to operate and then also this sense in which he uh uh uh, like God's will encompasses things which are like definitely not good, and like in is specifically in the case of the crucif- crucifixion of Jesus, like definitely a sin, but they are still part of God's will in some sense, and so I, I think that's really what we're hoping to tease out in this episode is. Um, like just with our episode on James, where we were talking about justification is in this one, we kind of got these two different elements that are both called God's will. And how do we stitch them together in a coherent theological way? Well, and I'm glad you mentioned stitching it together, because that is where we're eventually going with this episode. Um, but we got to do some more thinking before we get there. <laughs> we haven't gone deep enough. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like inception. So we got to go down another level. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I am Leonardo DiCaprio, and I am here to take you on this journey. <laughs> okay, so so let's think a little bit more about this word will. And I think one thing you mentioned in the intro to this episode, John, was really good. Um, it's important not to overinterpret this word. Uh, just like the word justification or faith or works, you know, before these were technical terms in theology, they were just ordinary Greek words or Hebrew words that were being used by authors in contexts that made sense to them. They weren't thinking that hard about like they're necessarily the particular word they were using. They just thought, Oh, this fits best here. You know? So I guess like the word will, I think really all that is meant by it, <laughs> uh, by it's like dictionary Greek definition. And of course there's different, there's different ways to talk about God's desires and wants in Greek, and, and I, that's beyond the scope of this episode. But I, I think really just it's a stronger version of the word want. I think that's all that the, the biblical writers are really trying to say with this word, right? Um, it's like want, but um, it's not just that you desire something, because that's kind of like, I want a hamburger again, or I want this job, I want, you know. But I think it's intend, like you're also intending to put forth some effort to get it. Right. So like if you're willing to do something, that doesn't just mean, oh, that'd be cool if it happened, you know, uh, but like, no, I'm going to I'm like, I'm going to do it. I'm at least going to really try to do it. Like, that's what we mean when we say we're willing to do something. Yeah. Um, it's like I, you know, I frequently want hamburgers, but it's not often that I will will a hamburger in picking up my keys to go drive to McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's right. Yeah. It's not always a significant difference, though, I would say. Like, there's a difference in connotation, but, you know, you will see verses in one translation use the word will, and in other translations, the same word will be translated as want. And I think both are fine in certain contexts. Uh, So, uh, yeah, that's all I'm trying to say is that, like, there's a difference between will and want, but uh, but it might not be it might not be significant depending on the context. So, like, yeah, let's not overinterpret this word. Like, oh, like grandiose, oh, the will of God, right? You know, in many cases, like here in this First Thessalonians passage, you know, I think Paul is just saying God wants you to be sanctified. <laughs> like in a very significant sense, that's all he's thinking. You know, and, and another way that we can sort of see that that there's this kind of close connection between the idea of like wanting and willing things is if we look at a couple verses that uh, uh, seem to almost kind of 
blend between th this this idea of like wanting and willing things where you know we sort of think of wanting as is perhaps a, like a weaker version and willing as a stronger version of it um and you know because one of the things is you know someone one of you might say to me uh <laughs> that a uh you know well because god like god wills things but god is like all powerful so you know if he if he wills it then that that kind of carries along with it this this idea that it's definitely going to happen but, I mean, that's not really the way that Scripture uses the idea of God's will in every instance. Like, they're, the biblical authors are totally okay with saying that God wants or wills things that, like, don't end up actually happening or don't end up panning out. Like in the case of Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says that God is, you know, quote, not willing that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. You know, and the reality of the fact is that many people through history have perished apart from apart from God. And so even though God wills that people don't, they still do. There's another example of this in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Um, it doesn't expressly use the word will, but it kind of has the same concept. So quote here, uh, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So again, it's like God is articulating that he has a clear preference. Like what God is saying right here is that he doesn't take pleasure in the wicked dying, but he wants them to repent. And so again, it's connected to this idea of like the biblical authors are totally okay with God having unfulfilled wants. And like that, that is basically exactly the terminology that the Bible uses. And so again, as we're making sense of it, we have to account for this idea here. Yeah, no matter how we choose to like systematize uh, the Bible and put together all these different, you know, discussions of God's will, like it, we really, we really have to be careful not to let a systematic theology destroy the individual like thoughts of Ezekiel and Peter and other passages like this, right? Like, you know, we might say that like God has decreed that some would be condemned and God would be glorified in His condemnation of sin, right? That that would be a Calvinist perspective on God's will, which I, I would tend to, to gravitate towards. Um, but like Ezekiel says, God doesn't have pleasure in the death of the wicked. And we should let Ezekiel speak for himself, right? And well, <laughs> speak for God, right? <laughs> because he was a prophet, right? But <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, one better, speak for God. <laughs> yeah, right. My, my point is like, you know, we should let the biblical authors be the biblical authors and we shouldn't try to systematize them out of their thoughts, you know, um, for whatever reason, uh, this this could be, you know, and, and it might be difficult to figure out how it works. But like you were saying, John, for whatever reason, God has willed that not all of his wills should come to pass, if we could put it that way, <laughs> because people do, in fact, disobey his will. Um, you know, we could say that God wants nobody to murder the Messiah, but also God wanted Jesus to die for the sins of the world. Both are true biblical statements. Now, how we figure that out? You know, well, <laughs> we're going to try in this episode, but, <laughs> you know, um, it's kind of like God is one and God is three. Death definition of the Trinity. Well, there's a paradox there. It's not always easy to figure out how that works. Um, kind of beyond our way to understand, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think what we're trying to get at, though, is that all believers in Scripture, like real Christians, everybody must agree that there exists some greater tell us some greater end that God is valuing that necessitates that he allows us to disobey his will, right? So, so for some reason, God wants things that don't come to pass. 
I think that you have to say that if you're being true to the scriptures. So what's the what's the answer to that? Is God like not omnipotent? Is God not capable of bringing things to pass that he wants to have happen? Is he not sovereign? Does he not care about us? Does he, you know, like there's all sorts of accusations we could levy against God, but I don't think these are options for the biblically faithful Christian. Obviously, God is omnipotent. He And it, the scripture says he does whatever he pleases, right? which so, you know, so whatever God wants, he does. So there must be some greater end here, some greater tell us that God is going for that uh, that necessitates this difficulty in the in the word will in in this term the will of god and however we choose to slice and dice that again calvinists arminians do we believe in free will do we believe in predestination uh a little beyond the scope of where we're going with this episode but i would just i think it's important that everyone acknowledge that it actually doesn't matter where you come down on that for the purposes of this of this um understanding that that there has to be two definitions of the will of god all right so i think we've gone pretty deep on this idea and, and you know, the definition of the word. Now we're going to tie back into 1 Thessalonians a little bit here. Um, so why this Thessalonians verse in particular? Well, <laughs> I'm immediately going to go to another verse outside of 1 Thessalonians <laughs> to answer that. Yeah, we're sort of breaking um, so all of our here. rules here a little bit. but <laughs> <laughs> So here's what got me thinking, John. Uh, some uses of will in the Bible might be ambiguous. Uh, there might be different ways of understanding it. For example, earlier when you mentioned 2 Peter 3, 9, God does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There are people who interpret that as like, um, when God is talking about anyone, he's talking about like, God doesn't want any of his elect to perish. He wants to make sure everybody who will come to know him has the time to do so, right? In his, in, in his history. And I, that is a valid interpretation of that verse. I don't think that's totally off base. Um, so it's possible that 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 verse is not meant in the decretive sense, but but maybe in the preceptive sense. I I'm, I don't think so, but it's possible. Um, so some are ambiguous, and some may even work with both meanings at the same time. And what got me thinking about this was how Paul introduces so many of his letters. He says that he's called to be an apostle quote-unquote, by the will of God. And I, this, this happens in a lot of his epistles, probably at least half of them. Um, I know it happens in the first and second Corinthians. Uh, I didn't compile this, but trust me. <laughs> I, I'm not going to give a reference, but it's in there. Called to be an apostle by the will of God. Uh, and there are clearly ways in which like both the preceptive sense and the decretive sense of God's will might be in view here. So first, I think the more obvious one is the decretive sense. So God is specifically calling Paul to be an apostle, not all Christians, right? This is like a particular human being in history whom God is calling for a particular purpose that no one else in human history gets to fulfill. I mean, there are other apostles, but there's only one Paul, right? <laughs> uh, he's especially uh, profound among the apostles as a writer of scripture and, uh, you know, the biggest evangelist of history, right? So, this is Paul's personal destiny. This is God's plan for him, you know. This is what he's calling him specifically to. So, in that sense, it's not a precept so much as it is God's foreordination of the course of Paul's life. But I, I'm i not sure that Paul thought of it solely in those terms. I think there's also a preceptive sense to this, right? Because Paul seems to think of his own calling as a sort of 
precept from God for him personally, right? That I am personally bound to this precept. It's not just God orchestrating history. This is what I am bound to do. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 9.16, If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. It's almost like, you know, Paul is anathematizing himself or condemning himself to hell if he refuses this call, right? It's almost that strong. He says a necessity is laid upon me. It would be a sin for me not to do this. Um, and therefore, he, he's saying like, oh, I don't get any special <laughs> ground to boast, right? It, you know, if, if a Christian is really excellent um, at performing good works of charity in their community, well, then, you know, that although you wouldn't be proud about it, you know, there would be a sense of like, yeah, like I've done something above and beyond. I've excelled in obeying Christ, right? But for Paul, it's like, you know, everything I do, this isn't excelling. This is the bare minimum God has called me to. So, yeah, so I think there's both these senses at play for Paul. This is God's, like, orchestration of history. Um, although for Paul, it would be his future. But uh, I think either way, the point is understood. But it also is a precept. It's also a command for Paul. So I think I don't I don't know that Paul is thinking too hard about like a distinction here. I think he just wrote, God wants me to do this, right? This is what I, I you know, God's desire was that I be called to be an apostle, and therefore I must be. And so I don't think Paul is making quite the same fine distinctions that maybe some of those other passages do. Um, like whoever does the will of my father in a general sense, whoever obeys his commands is a little different than what Paul is saying here. Yeah, and so maybe to tie that back to the First Thessalonians passage, I, th I think we could probably make an argument that there is a similar kind of thing happening here, where there's both a decretive and a preceptive sense in which the will of God is our sanctification. So, like, let, let's let's look at it here. So the verse says, you know, it's the will of God, our sanctification, that we abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of us know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And so, you know, on the surface, this is this sounds very preceptive because, you know, we have these general, broad, applicable precepts that God has given to us of this you know, you should control your own body or your own vessel in holiness and honor. You should abstain from sexual immorality. These are like thing. These are our actions that God like desires for us to take or that he has articulated that he wants for us to take. And that sense, it is that which has been revealed to us. But I think there might be something else that's going on here as well. Um, and and what's going on is that the specifically the use of the word sanctification is important here. It, it's not just that it's saying it's God's will for us to, uh, you know, uh, abstain from sexual immorality, but it's uh, what what is God's will is our sanctification. And if we look at the way that sanctification is used in Scripture, it's never something that we like do in our own power. It's not like we sanctify ourselves, um, but it is specifically the Holy Spirit working within us that produces the result of sanctification, that there is this uh, uh, like collaboration almost that is happening between the Spirit working in our lives and then that resulting in the transformation of our actions. And and we even see that in verse 8, where Paul says that, you know, if anybody disregards this, he's not disregarding man, but God who gives you the Holy Spirit. 
And so in, in Paul's mind, it's the like the rejection of this thing of abstaining from sexual immorality is it, it's connected to this rejection of the giving of the Holy Spirit and, you know, being connected with sanctification. So like in Paul's mind, even in this first Thessalonians verse, that's definitely where Paul's mind is at of this connection between sanctification, the work of the, the giving of the Holy Spirit, which then is the like the work of the Holy Spirit within you. So in that sense, it, it then is you know, being more connected with this result that is going to happen since this decretive sense of the will of God, because if it is the Holy Spirit who is acting in your, like, in your life, then it is, in fact, producing these results. So it's that, um, it's not just that God has said, like, oh, I want you to do this thing, but that God himself is also taking action to produce that thing in history. And so in that sense, you kind of get both. It's both a precept, but it's also decreed because it, it's something that God, in fact, carries out and does. Yes, absolutely. And I think uh, we're going to really carry the ball forward on that <laughs> uh, in this episode, this idea of God, um, God's power working in us. Um, but yeah, and I think, you know, there's, there's something else that's, uh, that's a good point here. Uh, when Paul says, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. That's verse 7 in 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, like in scripture, the description of like being called for something by God is, is really powerful. It's not just like, you know, God's recommendation, <laughs> you know, like Paul, you're called to be an apostle. Like <laughs> it's not God saying like, Hey, I think you should do this thing. Yeah. Paul, Paul like is not like, idea. well, God recommended that I go <laughs> preach the gospel. No, he's like, Whoa, if I don't right, necessity is laid upon me. Um, this is an absolutely necessary <laughs> part of my personal destiny that I must fulfill or I've failed my Lord. Right. So being called is powerful. Yeah. It's like Saul, Saul and Jesus are getting coffee and, uh, you know, Saul's like, man, I've just, I don't really know what direction I'm going in my life right now or what's going on. And Jesus is like, hey, if you tried this apostle thing, <laughs> you should look into it. For sure. Yeah. And that's not what called means. I mean, uh, so Paul aside, there's descriptions of Christians in general, like we're called to be saints, quote unquote. That's in the intro to first Corinthians. Um, Romans nine describes this as us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Right. It means like the people who have been called out from like the world, right? Which would be in the old covenant would be the Jews, um, right? This is my special people, my special ethnic nation who I've called out to be my special people among the people of the world. And then in the new covenant, it would be all believers of any ethnicity whom God has called out from the world, from, you know, the, the anti-Christian systems that they live in, right? To be believers. It doesn't just mean that, uh, like, you know, you heard the gospel one time, right? Or that God, uh, it, it's not just a preceptive, like, oh, you're called to believe in me, so you should believe in me. No, it's like being called means you really do it. It's effectual, uh, we might say. <laughs> and we might say, and many theologians might say, uh, effectual calling is a uh, common theological term. So it's, uh, yeah, so we're called. And the implication here, I think, in First Thessalonians 4 and I might be going a little bit off on a limb here, but I think this is on the right track. I think Paul is saying, if our lives are marked more by impurity than by holiness, we may need to examine whether or not we were even called at all, because God hasn't called us for impurity. I might be going out a little bit on a limb here, but I think this is the right track. I think the implication here is that if, if our lives are marked more by impurity than by holiness, then maybe we're not called, right? 
Like, God has not called us for impurity. So if we are impure, then, right? Like, and that's why Paul is saying that, like, the will of God is our sanctification. Um, like, I think if, if we're called, then that's something that we will be working towards with the Holy Spirit. Now, sanctification is a progressive process, always. Like, it's, <laughs> it's slow. So I think, I think Paul is not saying, like, you know, examine your life and if you're if you're impure then you should like feel you're not called but i think he is saying that like um i think he's both saying that we need to strive for holiness and also saying that god wills us to be holy you know i think both of those have to be in view here um and to depend on god for your for your sanctification for your holiness right to trust him that he will work it out um and if you're doing that then you're going to be progressing toward holiness not impurity uh you know, and in our own lives, as we see fruit get born out of, you know, time spent at church, time spent with other believers, time spent in prayer, then we're like, oh, yeah, that's sanctification. That's the spirit working in me, producing holiness, not impurity. And if we disregard that, then we're disregarding God who gives his Holy Spirit to us. That's what how we go, you know, into verse eight there. I think that's a, there's a really clear like line of Paul's thought. And it's helped if we think of that term sanctification and the will of God. Um, as being both a decretive and a perceptive. And so you, you might hear a little bit in the way that we're talking about this, that it's it's actually really kind of hard to disentangle these ideas of the preceptive and decretive wills of God. Um, and, and maybe even the way that it's that these terms are often set up in like theology textbooks, and even maybe some of the way that we've been talking about it before is it, it it's almost like we're working a little too hard to separate these two things out from one another. Because when you look at a verse like First Thessalonians, it's it's really not quite as clear that the utilization of will neatly falls into one of these categories without having some kind of overlap or interface with the other category. And 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 perhaps maybe a way that we could articulate that is saying, in a sense, there are kind of these two wills of God or these two notions of the will of God, but it's not that like God is schizophrenic that he has like these two wills warring within him, one that is a decretive will and one that's a preceptive will. You know, God is one unified will. He is one being. And, it, you know, it, it really, I think, is actually more a statement about us as humans bound in time and finite and limited that we have to make these kinds of distinctions and categorizations to make sense of the complexity and beauty of who God is. And so at times we may feel a kind of tension between these ideas of like a decretive, uh, more of a decretive or more of a preceptive will of God. But it, again, I, like, I don't think that's actually making a statement about the character of God. I think that's making a statement about us as humans in the way that we think and the way that we interact with history and the way that we uh, uh, just are like, yeah, finite and not like infinite and filling of time the way that God is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a single unified will of God, but it's beyond our capacity to fully understand. So we have to look at it from different perspectives. We have to see this as like, okay, God does want these things. This is what he's commanded of us, but something else is going on because, you know, Jesus was crucified. Right. So so it's a little more complicated than just God wants these things and God gets what he wants. Right. Uh, even though that is true, 
in so far as it goes. You know, it's a, it's a true theological statement to say that, that God gets what he wants and God wants us to not murder. But, but it's not complete. There's more going on because God is a much more complicated being than we are. Right. And, and maybe one of the ways that we can articulate that, that, that limitation and challenge is um, the, the way that we as humans want things cannot be the same way that God wants things. Merely because, you know, we as humans, uh, like, exist and are bound within time. Like, we don't know what the future is. And so there is a sense in which the way that we want and will things is forever contingent upon this future that we don't have knowledge of. And so it's like, you know, I may want something to happen, or I might want some result to take place, but I don't have knowledge about whether that thing will happen or not happen. But on the other hand, God does have this knowledge about the future, and he is not bound in time. And so God cannot want with the, like, uh, uh, the, uh, the, with the same kind of, of, knowledge limitation that I want with. And so whenever we even talk about, you know, God wants this thing to happen, it it it's a little strange even to use the word want because immediately we imbue upon that word want with this uh this notion of being in time of, you know, it, it almost does connote this idea of not knowing. Um, you know, I want this thing to happen, but you know, it maybe it will, maybe it won't. But that is not the situation that God is in when he wills or wants things. And so, like, immediately there is already this this barrier to us being able to understand God's desires merely because we just aren't God, you know? Very true. Well, and there's one theologian alive today who has done a lot of work to to kind of unpack this mystery. Um, and I'd like to kind of introduce one of his ideas here on the podcast because I think it's very helpful and very smart. <laughs> um and and good theology should be should be that it should help us understand scripture uh, and make sense of conundrums like this. Um, and that theologian is John Frame, and he has introduced this concept called triperspectivalism. Wow, that's a mouthful. <laughs> which is a big way of saying, <laughs> right? It's a big way of saying there are three perspectives on something, right? And so, as a system, John Frame is trying to interpret theological concepts from three different perspectives um, because of that acknowledgement that we are limited finite creatures trying to understand an unlimited infinite God. And because of that, there's complexities to it. So there might be issues that could seem paradoxical or contradictory, but if we look at them like from, okay, well, maybe it's just that it's hard to understand it. So let's look at it from a few different perspectives to try to get a whole picture here. Um, and so that's kind of what he's about. And the three different perspectives are, and, you know, there's not going to be a test after this, but <laughs> but I got to explain what we're what we're kind of doing here. Um, so the, the first perspective would be the normative perspective. And this, you know, you might guess based on the, the word normative, it, it means like, what are God's norms for us, right? Like what, what normally is supposed to be the case? So that would be things like do not murder, right? Normatively, you know, like thou shalt not murder. That's the rule. That's obvious. That's objective. Everybody can read the Bible and, you know, see that rule in there. That's normative. Um, so that's one perspective. Now, I think obviously that would correspond to God's preceptive will, because that's where God, you know, has certain desires based on commands and precepts. 
So this goes along with the normative perspective in John Frame's scheme. Uh, then there's the second perspective, which is the situational perspective. So this is not like the normative perspective, which is objective and universal. It's for all times and all places for all people. The situational perspective is more like what's going on in history. Like, where are we at in, you know, in the history of salvation in particular? Like, are we Jews living in the old covenant? Are we under the new covenant? Right. What if we're before Abraham? <laughs> right? um, so there's different situations in history. And of course, also different situations, different nations, different, you know, standards of living. There's lots of different things in history that affect God's dealings with man even though God's objective, normal, normative standards never change, right? So, so there's the norm, and then there's the situation that we find ourselves in. So that's the second one. Now, that would, of course, correspond to God's decretive will, right? Because we've been talking about how God's decretive will is how things work themselves out in history. What has God actually decreed to take place in history? So that corresponds to Frame's situational perspective. But what about this third perspective? We don't have another term for God's will, and Frame su suggests that we employ a third perspective. What is that perspective? Uh, Frame calls it the existential perspective. And so that goes with, you know, existentialism, right? Uh, it, I mean, John Frame is not an existentialist. Don't get me, don't misunderstand. That's like a whole brand of philosophy, right? But the idea is like, this is talking about us as individuals and our own relationship with God, our own understanding of how we relate to him, what he is like, um, who we are to him, prayer, etc. cetera, right? Um, like, how do we as individuals who have our own will and our own soul interface with this God. And that is the existential perspective. Uh, but we don't have a way to talk about God's will in terms of this existential perspective um, using the traditional terms, because we've just said perceptive will corresponds to this normative perspective. The decretive will corresponds to the situational. But what about this existential perspective? Um, but here's the thing. I think scripture does speak about the will of God in an existential way. We just don't have a term for it. Or at least, I don't know, maybe Frame has come up with one. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I'm not aware of a term that's used. Um, so, like, when I say that Scripture speaks of this, one, well, we've already just looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, in which we've argued that God's sanctification, being his will, is both something we do and something he does. We work together on this, right? We have to be sanctified. We must work to be sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also works in us and we're called for it. So if that's the case, well, you know, it doesn't fit neatly into either category of the preceptive will or the, the decretive will. It's kind of a little bit of both. So here's some other verses I think that go along with this idea that God's will is working in us with our will. How about Colossians 1.29? I love this verse. I love, love, love this verse. <laughs> Paul says, for this I toil. And he's talking about, um, I believe in context, he's talking about like preaching the gospel, um, right? So for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Like, let me say that again. Listen to all these like uh, these pronouns. <laughs> like they're really, they're really crucial. 
struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Wow. Like you could, yeah, you could write a whole <laughs> library of books on that. Yeah, one yeah, totally. But, but you see, but you see in this kind of the, 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 the interfacing between God's actions and Paul's actions that he says for this, I toil. So, you know, in that sense, Paul is the subject of that verb. Paul is the one toiling, you know, and yet at the same time, the struggling is, you know, with all of his energy and he powerfully works within me. And so, you know, by the end of the verse, Paul is actually the object of the verb, that it is God, the subject who is working within Paul. And, and, and so you get kind of both sides of this thing of Paul toiling and God working powerfully. And those things are, are married beautifully in this verse together. Yeah. I, yeah. How about Philippians 2, 12 through 13? You'll notice this is all very like Paul stuff. Because <laughs> right? Paul is, Paul, yeah, Paul is big on this. Um, <laughs> Very Pauline. So Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Dude, it's like every concept we've been talking about so far in this episode, just thrown into one verse, right? Maybe we so, should have done this episode on Philippians 2. <laughs> well, sure, but he, you know, I guess the term will is used in verse 13, but it's, you know, not the will of God, quote unquote. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, but this is great. So, okay, so Paul says two things in a row. Actually, no, he says one thing and then he justifies it with a for clause. Again, that magic word for that we keep bringing up on this podcast, right? So he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why or how, right? For it is God who works in you. It's like, okay, so do I work out my own salvation or does God work it in me? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the unequivocal answer is yes, right? For Paul, um, both and. So, and, and Paul doesn't like go on an excursus to explain this. I don't think Paul knows. I don't think Paul has much of an answer to this. He just knows that it's happening and wants us to know that it's happening. Right. Yeah. And and Paul's not concerned with developing in detail the philosophy of how like human and divine action interface in the person. He's so much more concerned with the like very concrete exhortation to like run the good race and to you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like he's he's not he is not trying to do what John Frame is doing. He has an entirely different uh, uh, um, uh goal that he's trying to reach in what he's writing yeah yeah for, for sure paul is not thinking in john frame's terms because i don't think anybody did before john frame right john frame is trying to apply a <laughs> philosophical framework to theological problems which that that has its drawbacks but i think here it's really helpful because paul is clearly thinking about the will of god in an existential manner here not the normative manner or the or the situational manner paul is clearly thinking about god's will as something that he works inside us in cooperation with our will that's that has to be how we interpret this i don't see any other way to do it right now we can you know <laughs> again going back to the calvinist arminian thing we might very well say you know i would as a calvinist that that god's will is takes primacy that that his will is the first one here right arminians might come to a different conclusion on that but again no matter what take you have if you're a you know evangelical christian <laughs> yeah, whatever that word means <laughs> yeah whatever that means these days that's true <laughs> but like anyway anyways you know my point you know if you're not like as long as you think the scriptures are authoritative and that you have to take them seriously we have no choice but to say like well we work out our own salvation and god works it in us both are true now 
you know, I, again, let's let's have fun debating till the end of time how that works. Um, you know, I think we might be doing that till the end of time, to be frank. I don't know that we'll necessarily get it even once we're in heaven. <laughs> but one way or another, like you were saying, John, with the, you know, run the good race. And, and, you know, Paul is very concerned about the existential side of this. Right. How, how is it that we work and God works? Well, they both happen. That's that's what we know. And so we should, you know, we should pray to this God. We should love this God. We should be close to him. Right. Yeah, we should be his friend. Um, he calls us his friend, right? All this stuff. This for Paul is far more important than waxing eloquent about, you know, theology. Uh, so, so this is, I think, where where I really wanted to head with this episode. Like, like our sanctification is a both and thing, um, and the will of God is not just something that exists out there. It's something that's being worked out in you, with the Holy Spirit, you know, in in our hearts, um, you know, convicting us of sin, calling us to repentance, leading us to do good works. Uh, loving our neighbor, uh, loving God, all this stuff, right? So I don't know. Um, I don't know the word for this. I don't know what to call this will of God. Um, we have preceptive slash revealed. We have decretive slash secret. I'm just going to call this this third will, this third sense of will, uh, spirit empowered obedience. <laughs> Sound good? <laughs> like, I, don't, I, I don't know. Yes, I love it. Like, because it just it just takes too long to say, you know, God working in you to will and to yeah. work for his well, good pleasure. You know, I would say it's the, yeah, spirit empowered obedience is really good. Uh, you know, maybe the collaborative will of God, because it is this, this uh, uh, working together of your will with God's will. Um and and maybe I, I'm not sure if that's a precise way of putting it or, or something, but um, well, I think that's good. No, I, I like it. I'll I'll take it. You know, <laughs> collaborate the collaborative will of God. Uh, yeah, because we are created with our own will, and He works in us and through us. So yeah, and I think the thing <laughs> that I sit with this the most is that maybe maybe where the lack in previous terminology around God's will is is that both preceptive and uh, decretive wills are, you know, you know, both of those descriptions are kind of connote a, a passive kind of will almost where, you know, the, the, it, you know, you, we would say like in the decretive sense that it's like from eternity past. And so for us in the present day, the decretive will of God, it, it, it doesn't carry the, the, the active connotation to it. It is like something that has been decreed. And similarly with the uh, preceptive will of God, that is also something that has like, it, it, it is in a sense passive in our experience of it today, because like we already have God's precepts in the form of scripture. Uh, and so both of those wills are not, if we adopt those categorization, those wills aren't active. However, the whole point with this like spirit empowered obedience, this collaborative will is it is the active form of that will it is the uh, if we could say like the willing of god in time as we experience it like it is as we are willing as god is willing it, you know if i can uh, really trying to hit those like active verbs strongly there and so you know th this is kind of bringing in that that like active in time part of our experience uh, uh uh like aspect of it which is and it is really interesting because the vast majority of the new testament seem or especially paul is overwhelmingly concerned with that uh uh with like with that experience of 
you living the Christian life, that you like walking in obedience. And like all of these are that like active sense of, of how we experience this Christian life. And so like, I'm, I'm really glad that, that we're kind of bringing in <laughs> that like existential aspect to this discussion of God's will. Sure. Yeah. And there's other things I, you know, I, this isn't even something I wrote down in our show notes, but it just comes to mind stuff like you are the, the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, right? And we pray in the same in that Sermon on the Mount, that's where we're called the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Then Jesus commands us to pray in chapter six in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Well, in in the broader scope of Jesus's thought, what does that mean? I mean, we're the ones who preserve the world. We're the ones who bring the light to the world. We're the ones who bring the kingdom. We're the conduits of his will. Like that's, that's the whole point. <laughs> Which so, so like, yeah. So when you think of it from that perspective, oh, well then there's not so much difference between talking about God's commands, his, his, you know, precepts and his decrees, what actually happens in history. Uh, they go together. Right? <laughs> um, which And then you start to see how all three of these perspectives are really looking at the same unified will of God. But just because we are not God, we have to, <laughs> we have to like think of it from different ways to kind of grasp at this really great reality that's beyond us. But then when you really start thinking about it, as you and I have been doing for a while here, um, and even in my mind, this is going beyond where we prepared for this episode. Like it's, I'm like, I'm getting it a little more, you know, as you start to piece it together, you're like, Oh yeah, these really aren't that different. These intersect, you know? Well, Jeremy, maybe we should follow the example uh, that uh, Paul seems to set for us in the new Testament of uh, not being overly concerned with developing, uh, you know, you know, full, clear, systematic, philosophical constructions of things, but really kind of getting into the existential aspect of it, of our experience of it. So, you know, maybe one of the things we should ask is, so, so we've spent this time talking about the will of God, but it, 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 we've been talking about it like from the like description about God, uh, uh, you know, with respect to this will, but, but maybe we could bring it home for us and, and our own experience surrounding God's will. And I, like, I guess I just have one question, which, you know, that is, like, to what degree should we be trying to discern what God's will is and how, like, what God's will is for our life? Because, I mean, we've got these sort of three perspectives on God's will of, you know, that which he has, uh, uh, like, decreed will happen, you know, that which he, you know, prescribes for us to do, and then our own, like, active participation and experience of it. And... I, I don't know. So I, I just kind of want to put that question out there of like, how should we be interacting with these three different perspectives in our daily life? Yeah. And, and this was actually the impetus for this whole episode, um, even though it, it went all the way into triperspectivalism and John Frame and defining new terms of God's will. Right. Um, but the original in, in, intention for this episode was just kind of like, you hear Christians say all the time stuff like, oh, I'm just trying to figure out God's will for my life, right? And I just, I, I think the way it is said is not the way that the Bible talks about the will of God. Like we did quote Romans 12 earlier, which says, you, you, you know, you should discern the will of God. But then it says, what is good and acceptable and perfect, right? Like what is, what is pleases God, right? It's not like what college to go to or who to marry or whether you should become a missionary or not even, right? It's like, you know, what is the will of God that you love your neighbor, that you love your wife, that you go to church. <laughs> I think that's what Paul is saying, like not being conformed to the world, being transformed to obey God, 
Yeah, and, and maybe maybe some additional language that we could, perhaps this will be useful, perhaps it won't, um, is, y- you know, maybe thinking about the way that we know God's will in these three different, these three different frameworks of his uh, decretive will, his um, uh, perceptive will, and his collaborative will, as we've kind of coined those terms, that it's like, you know, us knowing God's decretive will is it would be kind of like us knowing our destiny if we if I could kind of like use those colloquial terms for it, um you know and and like knowing God's perceptive will is like having knowledge of what Scripture reveals to us about what what God requires of us you know this is like you know knowing the commands of Christ um you know and, and then like the collaborative will though is is it I think that's the interesting one because I feel like the way that we know. God's like the collaborative will of God is in the actual experience of doing it like it is a a, uh, a like a knowledge of action that like as you participate in this thing you grow in the knowledge of it does, does that make sense yeah I, well yeah I think that's kind of what I was thinking but I was thinking of it more in terms of wisdom so like the collaborative will of God could be like okay so I know that God's will is to not ab- is to uh abstain from sexual immorality right but existentially, that can be very difficult, okay? <laughs> like, you know, uh, many of us struggle with it. It's a very common sin, even for people who, who really want to do the right thing, right? And people struggle with genuine addictions to, to you know, pornography and, um, you know, and, or, and, you know, we can go beyond the First Thessalonians 4 passage. I mean, drug addiction, that's more than just a willpower thing. That's like a, a physical body thing, Um and so existentially could be like applying the wisdom and having the direction of the spirit to know how to overcome these sins and to also patiently repent of them, you know, if the process takes a while, right? Um, that it might take a while to be fully rid of this sin, right? Um, so, I, yeah, so I think both of us are kind of hitting at the same thing, which is like, you know, the to know God's preceptive will is to just know the Bible. Right? It's the same, one and the same thing. Um, but to know his his, you know, to, to collaborate with that requires a process of learning and prayer and, you know, and it might involve learning things about psychology, <laughs> like abstaining from sexual immorality. Well, you know, what is my brain doing when I, when I, you know, engage in it, right? How can I keep that from happening? Um, so, so that whole thing can, can be a complicated, very personal process. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I think you're bringing up some great points and I, I think what I want to do is see if we can turn to some scriptures to help us understand. So like like those are perhaps maybe the categories we're presenting for what knowledge of God's will in these three perspectives would look like. And so now let's ask, you know, and see like what does scripture then say about what we should and should not do about, you know, then investigating and attempting to acquire that said knowledge. Um, and like, I, I guess one of the verses that pops into my mind immediately is uh, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. You know, it says the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And <laughs> like we, we, we you know, defined so, secret and revealed will earlier, but we neglected to mention that the terms come from this verse, but we just didn't bring it up because this verse didn't, we didn't need to use it until now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, so you basically are, are given this thing of there, there is like two, these, these two kinds of, of things that God is willing, these like secret things, which the whole point is that God has not revealed them. And then there is that which God has revealed. And then the verse even goes on to tell us 
what those revealed things are. And it's specifically the words of this law. So, you know, in Deuteronomy, it's, you know, Moses giving this farewell speech to the people of Israel. And so in context, he's talking about like, you know, oh, all of this big, long lecture about history and law that I've just given you here, like this is what has been revealed to you. And so this is what God's will for you is that you should do these things. I don't know. Am I am I reading too much into that, Jeremy, or, or what's your I don't take? think you are at all. I I think that you're you're taking it into a context that is different than Moses's, perhaps, but I think you're absolutely right. Oh, sure. Um, like the point is like, okay, we have this law that's been revealed to us. It's tough. So we better focus on that instead of trying to pry into the mind of God about the things he hasn't said, right? And of course, in the context of the ancient Near East, where the Israelites lived, there were practices that are a little less familiar to us in, in the West today. Um, you know, such as divination and um, necromancy, right? Um, psychics and mediums, uh, which the Bible actually treats as like real, like they have real magic powers. Like you go to a psychic today and it's just bunk, you know? Um, but like the Bible treats these as like real demonic powers. And and the part of the idea, I think, of this is to um, to prohibit the people of Israel from seeking after alternative means of knowing God other than the scriptures themselves. Right. I think that's the whole point of this verse. <clears throat> uh, and so I think that relates to this whole idea. Like when people are are saying things like, well, I want to know God's will. And they're talking about like who to marry. It's like, dude, God hasn't revealed that to you. Just pray for wisdom and then go marry someone you like who who's a Christian. You know, <laughs> there's really nothing more complicated to it than that. I mean, the, I guess the wisdom could involve things such as like, do your friends and family like the person? You know, does your pastor approve? Right? I don't know, things like that. But really, it's not any more complicated than God doesn't, hasn't decreed that. So I don't know. If you think they're hot and they love Jesus, then it's not really more complicated <laughs> than that. Like, <laughs> Well, and and I think maybe what, what, one thing that I'd bring uh, up for this, and, and our, our discussion here is really kind of cueing this idea for me here, is like I... I think that when people articulate things like saying like, oh, I'm trying to figure out God's will for this thing, it very much is this uh, like, or I guess it can be this idea of like seeking what is functionally a rep, like a new revelation where it's like, I'm, I'm wanting God to reveal to me in this, this particular way, what, like what he wants for me to do. And, but, but, but I think that the, if, if we re-examine that idea from these two perspectives is what we're given is God's precepts and then this, like the collaboration with the spirit in sanctification. And so like that there, there, there is a mechanism for you to understand God's will. And it's not this, it's not like a special dispensation of like knowledge from God, uh, like the way that, you know, you would like receive scripture or something like that. It is this like actual active participation in seeking to be obedient to the spirit as that knowledge has been revealed to you in scripture. And I would say that I think that is the answer to the question of like, how do I know God's will? How should I seek out God's will? It's like, well, like go do the things that he's revealed for you to do, you know, participate in a church community to, you know, love your family and to participate in that family structure that God has given to participate in the church, that structure that God has given to you to, of course, pray and to worship and to do all of these uh, like practices that God has already revealed and commanded for you to do. And that over the course of that active obedience, 
that you then will be doing what God wills for you to do. That it's this, you know, it's this guarantee that God has given that he will sanctify you as you walk in obedience with him. And so the concern of like, should I know beforehand what it is that God wants me to do so I can go out and do that? It's like, well, no, like just like do now the things that God tells you to do. And, you know, here we've got this great scripture thing that tells you what it is that God has willed for you to do. And he has given you the spirit to collaborate with you in that process of refining you to make you more Christ-like. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, there's an element to it where, like, people are just trying to discern God's decretive will, which is literally not possible. I mean, if you're a prophet, then God might reveal certain things to you about the future that, you know, that are not privy to everyone else. But the only really the, the only ordinary way that you come to know God's decretive will is just by observing reality as it unfolds. Right? <laughs> like it's God's will that COVID-19 happened in some sense. How do we know? Well, before, you know, December 2019 or whenever we discovered it, there's just <laughs> like there's no way, right? You can't you can't know. Like it's God's will that most churches shut down in 2020. Okay? Well, now we know. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't have known before beforehand, you know. I think there were some of the prosperity gospel preachers were like, "Oh yeah, like I predict that like COVID nineteen is going to be over in like July." It's like, <laughs> yeah, whatever, false prophet. Like, <laughs> right? We just don't know the decretive will of God until it until it unfolds. Um, <clears throat> and I think there's there's a, a level of arrogance. I, I don't want to be too harsh on people, but there's a level of arrogance with with thinking like, "Oh yeah, um, I'm I'm gonna like." be uh i'm seriously i i really do mean this there's a level of arrogance with this whole like well i'm just going to be a missionary and i'm going to throw all my eggs in that basket and i'm not going to like uh learn a trade that i could you know use to uh have an income to build a family on right um because i see people do that i see people like oh i'm just going to go all in on this right well don't be so arrogant that you think you know god's decretive will for your life better than you know better than the practical wisdom of learning the sort of trade or skill that could feed your wife and kids, right? Like, don't, don't be that arrogant. Um, your, your subjective understanding of God's call on your life could be wrong, no matter how strong you feel it. If it's not in the Bible, you could be wrong. So, like, you need to accept that you could be wrong. <laughs> now, if God's really calling you to missions, that's, that's, a, great, that's a great thing, like, you know. Um, if God's really calling you to do X or Y, it's, 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 I, it's not that I want to quash that. It's just that like, you know, there are specific commands that you are required to follow. Um, things like going to church, right? Uh, I don't want to get too far off in the weeds on this, but like, there's a lot of evangelists and apologetics figures who don't really go to church. They're not actively involved in a local church. Recently, we found out about these, you know, um, abuse allegations against Robbie Zacharias, who passed away, I think in, 2019 and, and it seems like they're credible right that Ravi was going around to different countries and like abusing women right that's like well Ravi apparently wasn't really connected to a local church <laughs> so you know maybe he felt this call like oh i gotta go do apologetics or evangelism and that'll be really great you know except uh he's commanded like all of us are to not give up meeting together so he had no accountability right so no so no matter how much that call might have been genuine at first um, it seems like he slipped away into some horrific sins because he, he wasn't, you know, actually obeying the things revealed. Um, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but I think I just really want people to understand this, like, that, that it, is, it is 
there's problems with assuming that our subjective understanding of what God wants us to do with our life is always going to be the way we feel or is necessarily the objective truth. The only way that we know what God really wants of us perfectly is to know scripture. So on that note, <laughs> we haven't brought up this passage yet, but I think it goes along with what we were just talking about. Um, in James 4, verses 13 through 16, uh, I love this passage so much. <laughs> it says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live, and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, you know, here you got some people who are trying to, you know, they're good capitalists. They're trying to make a profit, trying to turn in income. And there's nothing, there's nothing unscriptural about that. You know, make, make some money, do some business, feed your kids, feed your wife, feed yourself, <laughs> do some good in the community. That's perfectly fine. But, but James wants you to know that you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. <laughs> so he, he thinks that the way we ought to make plans is to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. You know, and in fact, the Lord needs to will it for us to even live in the first place. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So to assume that our plans for the future, even our grandiose plans about, you know, marrying the perfect spouse and taking the perfect job and, um, you know, uh, I don't know, being a minister for the gospel, even really wonderful things that, that are commanded of us, you know, generally, like this, the, the church does need pastors and evangelists and missionaries, right? But, but you are part of a broader picture, right? And if God hasn't commanded you specifically to do it in scripture, then the posture should not be, oh yeah, this is certainly what I'm going to do. It should be, if the Lord wills, I will do this, right? So, so that's what I'm kind of getting at. I don't know. I've been ranting a lot, John. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think I think that's definitely a. What what really sticks out to me about that James passage is that it's not like James isn't saying you should you should see if the Lord wills for you to go and do this thing. Like like James isn't say, saying don't go to this place because you don't know if it's God's will or not. You know, and he's and he's not saying figure out if it's God's will or not for you to go to this place and do this thing. He's saying like, like sure, go do it. You know, but but with the knowledge that you you actually don't know right now, or you don't necessarily know right now if it's God's will for you to do this thing, and so you should <laughs> like do it all with humility. And uh, so I, I don't know. I, I I guess that's really what sticks with me. Maybe God's will is for your you know your camel to die on the way to go to that town that you're planning on making a, a great profit at, right? And then maybe because of that, you end up coming across some traveler on the road who doesn't know the gospel, right? Right. <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. You know, it could, it could be something like that, right? But it doesn't mean that it's a sin to attempt to go do it. It's, you know, it's, James is, is all about this whole, like, you know, uh, well, I don't know. It, this reminds me of uh, this quote that's attributed to St. Augustine. It's a little bit, um, of a paraphrase, but this whole like, love God and do whatever you please, quote, the original is love and do what thou wilt. <laughs> so people added the word like, love God and do whatever you please to it. But I think it's true. I think that's totally true. If you're obeying God's command, then, you know, these big life decisions that we freak out about and ask, like, what's God's will about like getting married? It's like, like I said before, if they're hot and, and they love Jesus, then According to God's priest, <laughs> the hot part isn't even necessary. Well, no, if they no, love no. Jesus, like, that's all that's required. 
<laughs> no, 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 Jeremy. It. I think it is necessary because we get Paul telling us in First Corinthians of like, hey, you know, if you know, it, if uh, if uh, you know, you can't control yourselves, then you know, go ahead and get married, you know. But if you can, like, you know, maybe don't, you know. So I think at least what Paul says is your relative level of physical attractiveness to your potential spouse is in fact actually an important deciding factor in whether or not you should marry them. Okay, I don't agree, but I'll agree to disagree. <laughs> like, okay, maybe we should do an episode okay. on that. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> so. <laughs> but the idea being like if they love jesus then preceptively you're obeying god's command so it, his will is that we would seek wisdom right and certainly james also tells us to ask for wisdom and that's totally appropriate ask for wisdom in choosing a spouse and then just do it like it's <laughs> you know again people also talk about like oh i'm just waiting for the right person to come along it's like why you're not command i mean read the bible look at what isaac did to get Rebecca. Like he sent out his servant and he's like, you're going to go on this giant epic quest. Like, you know, you're going to go find this, this woman for me. Cause I need to get married. Well, actually, wasn't it, was it Abraham who did that? Who sent this? I don't remember. <laughs> Anyways, the point is this servant goes on this epic quest. Right. And, and, and he like finds the woman. He's like, I'm taking you back with me. Cause you got to marry my master. Right? <laughs> and, and all this stuff. Absolutely right? It's like this wild journey, story. this, this, you know, yeah, it's like the hero's journey story. Right. Like, um, so like, why, why are you waiting? Like, Go find somebody, you know, like, again, I'm married, so it's easy for me to stay in my position. It's, you know, you're everyone has their own circumstance. It's just like uh, this whole like I'm waiting on God or whatever. I know I'm talking a lot about marriage, but I think that is the, like a point of time in which a lot of people do this with God. where they're like trying to discern God's will. It's like, OK, I think what you actually mean to say is I'm looking for wisdom to help guide me to find a good spouse. That's what you really mean, because you can't discern God's will until it happens in that sense of God's will. Right. Yeah. And, you know, but but it's not just with marriage. I mean, there's like tons of stuff that this can be applied to where it's like, you know, if you're trying to pick which college you should go to or whether you should even go to college or not, uh, you know, it's like, well, you know, love God and do what pleases you, you know, like it. And it, uh, yeah, I'm I'm right there with you, Jeremy. I think that the. There, there is a kind of, and, and I think part of it is um, connected with the just sheer number of choices that we have in our society these days, where so much is like up to us and what we choose, where it's like, you know, a couple centuries ago, the amount of agency that you had over deciding what your life was going to look like was so much more limited than it is now. It's like, I mean, like, you know, the question of like, who are you going to marry? Like, well, no, I mean, your parents are probably going to have a pretty substantial, you know, choice in like who you're going to end up marrying. Like, you know, in the limiting case of where they actually, you know, you know, set up a marriage for you. It's like you're not really even choosing who you marry or like, you know, what are you going to do? Like, well, I mean, what did your dad do for a living? Yeah. Like, that's probably what you're going to end up doing. Like, where are you going to live? I mean, probably the town that you were born in. And so like the. So I think there is a kind of choice paralysis that we have in the present day where it's like, man, you can kind of live wherever. You can kind of do most any job. You can marry a lot of different people. And so, you know, in our own, like, inability, I think, to handle all of the many different choices that are presented to us, we sort of, it's almost like we're trying to push off the responsibility of having to make that decision onto someone else. I don't know, maybe that's a maybe that's an overly harsh way of putting it, but like like I definitely feel that that impetus in myself of wanting to uh like 
remove from myself the responsibility of having to make decisions with, you know, challenging things. And I, and I think a lot of it has to do with there's just so many decisions that we need to make. True. Yeah. It's kind of like um, when Bernie Sanders was commenting on like all the different varieties of toothpaste available at the grocery store. Right. It's like <laughs> we're lucky to have toothpaste at all. Now we have to choose between Crest and <laughs> Colgate. Like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Like, but most of that's, you know, it's funny because most of the time we just make a choice. It's like, I don't I don't know, you know. Um, and, but I think you're right. It goes to every element of society with, with the development of technology and globalization and how interconnected everything is. I mean, you don't even have to participate in American culture much. If you don't want to, you can go like on, you know, Reddit or Tumblr or whatever, and find communities that are all about like Korean pop music, right? K-pop. And that's your culture. (laughs) <laughs> you can be like me and play a lot of video games and then you're like half Japanese, yeah. <laughs> you know, like you, but my point being like, we can even choose our own culture in so many ways. And I think that does feed into this like choice paralysis. Like you said, like, who do I marry? It's like, I don't know. It's really, <laughs> it's the most important decision you'll ever make. And also in a really important way, it doesn't matter that much. As long as you're smart about it, then you'll grow to love the person you married. Right. As long as you're smart about which job you take, then you'll excel in it and and you'll honor God in it. Right. Those kinds of decisions. And and again, like so much of the New Testament is not even focused on trying to position yourself in the right stage of life, but is about like, you know, just be faithful to God where you're at. You know, like we, we can have a whole discussion about the the discussion of slavery in the New Testament. But I mean, I think it is telling that when Paul is talking to people who are bound, like they're indentured servants, they're like actual slaves. And, you know, like what he tells them is like, you know, be faithful to Christ in the place where you're at. And I mean, cause like, that's the thing you can do. Like, you know, you, you don't have control over your freedom, but you know, be faithful to Christ. You know, he says the same thing to, to, to husbands and wives and, you know, it's, it's a whole big list, but I, I think there definitely is something to, Maybe we should be less concerned with making the, uh, like best decision, and be more concerned with being honoring to our Lord with the decisions that we make. Very true. Yeah, we're not necromancers. <laughs> we're not secret will discerners. We can't do that. They haven't been revealed to us. You know. So I think the conclusion is, obey God's commands, the real ones, and then you know. Don't um. Don't sweat the other stuff. Make wise choices. Talk talk to people who know more than you do. Right. Um. Learn from other believers. Right. This is part of the existential, collaborative will of God. We we figure out what what we need to be doing, how we ought to be using our time by the opinions of others. Stuff like spiritual gifts. A lot of people like ask themselves, "What's my spiritual gift?" You know, Paul talks about that in First Corinthians twelve through fourteen. It's like, well, probably the best way to find that out is to talk to other people and figure out, like, when I do this one thing, people seem to really be edified by it. And when I try to do this other thing, people get offended at me. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe my spiritual gift lies in the thing that people like, you know, maybe if I give to the give to people, people like, oh, you always give the best gifts or, oh, when we were in need, you really helped out. Like, well, then that's probably your spiritual gift. Or, or, or one of them. But but if know? they're like, oh, man, every time you sing, we all just want to rip our ears off. Like, OK, I, I think that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or if you think you're a prophet and everyone around you is like, dude, no. <laughs> and, you know, they're godly people. Then, like, 
pro probably listen to that. Like it's, it's, I think I have the gift of healing, but you're Benny Hinn and all you do is make people fall over, right? Well, they probably don't have the gift of healing. So right. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a thought, you know, but right. But, yeah. Yeah. So, so talk to other people, or if you're trying to make these decisions, like who to marry, like talk to your family, your friends, your pastors, like, uh, that's where you're going to find your wisdom in the body um, of Christ. So <laughs> I think another thing that goes along with this, I, I know we're kind of dancing around a conclusion to this very long episode, but I, I, something else that I think goes along with it is like, people will sometimes say like, uh, oh, I know it's God's will for me to do this, but that's like a sin. Like what they're saying they're going to do is a sin. <laughs> so someone's like, oh, I just felt like, you know, the Lord wanted me to like move in with my boyfriend or... <laughs> It's like, no, no, that's, that's not the Lord's will. And we know that objectively. Like, so. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I mean, we don't even have to speak abstractly. Like I, I, I know personally an individual who was absolutely convinced that the, that the Lord told him that he should leave his wife and get married to his, uh, uh, girlfriend and like that, that was God's will for him. And it's like, dude, no, that's like, like straight up, not true. Yeah, and and self-deception on a, on a really really disturbing level too when people say things like that you know and you see it all the time with like there's like all these ex-evangelicals um kind of coming out right now and it's kind of a trend these days um but it's a lot of like former uh christian music artists and and people you know and they'll just come out and and they'll like leave their wives and stuff like that it's like oh i've never felt freer it's like I don't know. You sure seem like you're enslaved to sin. Like, <laughs> I wonder how your wife feels about this. I don't know. Yeah. Probably she's devastated. Right. Probably you really hurt her. Probably you shouldn't be pursuing your sin. Right. <laughs> like, probably you should follow God's objective will instead of making crap up. If you if you can't tell audience, both me and Jeremy get pretty angry about like you know people blaspheming God. Well, yeah. I mean, hopefully. <laughs> we're commanded to be. That's part of God's preceptive will. So yeah. <laughs> hopefully we're heading in that direction. <laughs> well, I think we might want to wrap up and normally we do our, our application. I think we kind of have just been talking about a lot of application already. So I don't know. Do you want to just play the lovely sizzle noise and then maybe skip the other meat today? All right, so I want all of you to just be remembering all of the wisdom that me and Jeremy have so kindly given to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pro we're probably like way off the rails with like, you know, that th this First Thessalonians interpretation, collaborative. We're literally making up theology terms on this podcast that nobody knows about, right? <laughs> Who the heck are we, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if this has been profitable to you, excellent. If not, then, well, these are just the ravings of madmen. So Yes. <laughs> We will we will publish this podcast in Edify Mini, if the Lord wills. <laughs> it's time for milk, not solid food. Well, but speaking of that, we have some milk also um, to hit here. Do you want to read this, uh, this great uh, milk, not solid food verse for us, John? Of course. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but... The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, in the words of the immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. 
Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to the John 315 podcast at gmail.com. That's the John 315 podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.